Here's Neymar now. Cavani is there. And Saint-Étienne has surely won it in the 89th minute. Kalupa Cavano. Oh, what a strike. An absolute beauty from Florian Tobac. Kylian Mbappé wraps it up. Bonjour et bienvenue. Welcome along to the latest edition of Le Bourgeois, the official League Arm podcast. We are into our third week of uh, lockdown here in France. The homeschooling is, uh, is it's getting hard. My French grammar is improving a little bit as I try to teach my, my two daughters. Um, but we're going to be talking about football, of course, um, over the next uh, 30 or 40 minutes or so. We've got a couple of regulars on the pod, Ian Holyman and David Crossan. And we have a special guest, Tom Williams, an old friend, an old colleague of ours who used to live over here in France. Tom, based in the UK now. How are you doing, Tom? Hi, Matt. I'm doing well, thanks, in the circumstances. Um, as we were saying before we started recording, I think we're about uh, two weeks behind where you guys are in the UK. So uh, there's still a sense of novelty to uh, confinement. I'm sure that in another two weeks, it'll, it'll be grinding us all down more than it is currently. But yeah. So far, so far, so good, I'd say. It's, it's not been too bad so far. Yeah, it doesn't get better. But, uh, you know, we, we, we shouldn't complain too much. The sun is shining in, in, in Paris and uh, I'll get my sort of 10 minutes, 15 minutes out in the sun a bit later. But Tom, just to give a little bit of background, you worked over here in Paris for, for quite a while and you embedded yourself very much like us in the Ligue 1 culture. I see you a little bit as sort of journalism's answer to Emmanuel Adebayor or Didier Drogba, somebody who kind of <laughs> cut his teeth in France and then got that move to the UK. And, you, you know, you've just exploded, haven't you, and scoring week in, week out. Well, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd certainly like to think so. Um, yeah, so I moved to Paris in the summer of 2008. Uh, I joined AFP, as you say, uh, and I was there for four years in Paris during what was a really interesting time uh, for French football just coming off the back of uh, Lyon's uh, period of dominance in the in the first decade of the century. Uh, and then you had the Bordeaux team that, that won the league under Laurent Blanc, Didier Deschamps-Marseille, Lille winning the double under Rudy Garcia in 2011. And then just before I came back to the UK, the Qataris arrived at PSG and brought in Zlatan and Thiago Silva and all the rest of it. Yeah, I moved back to London in uh, the autumn of 2012. I had five years covering the Premier League for AFP and then went freelance year before last. So currently... Gun for hire, um, but keep still keeping quite a close eye on on French football. Good stuff. I need, I gave a lot of thought to the uh, to the to the striker comparison. I, I was going to call you like Neil Mopé, and then I thought, no, come on, he's better than that. So we went more sort of Drogba at a bio. And Tom has written this book. Of course, you are freelance now. You've written this uh, fascinating book called "Do You Speak Football?" All about the language of football, the glossary of the different words and phrases that that are used around the world, and. Uh, that's one of the reasons I've been very excited and, and looking forward to this podcast because we do we, we, we talk a lot of franglais on it and we try to enlighten our international audience, some of whom um, are fluent French speakers anyway and know all about these, uh, these different expressions. But the, the French language of football is a particularly colourful one, isn't it? And I know you've, you've written a whole chapter, you've, you've got different chapters on, on, on different countries. How, first of all, how did you come up with, with this idea? Were you influenced by, by your time in France and the language that they used over here? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, the book started out as something I wrote about the language of French football. I mean, I, I didn't speak any other languages apart from French uh, at the time that I, I started writing the book. It's still the case now. Um, and it was, it was the first football culture that I'd, I'd learned about in another language. And I, th- I think when you do that, it opens your eyes in, in so many different ways. Um, I wrote a glossary of French football terminology 
for the blizzard. Um, this is going back to 2016 uh, to coincide with Euro 2016, which obviously took place in France. Uh, and then off the back of that, ended up uh, getting in touch with a publisher who wanted to know if I'd be interested in writing a global version of the French glossary. Uh, and that's where the book came from. So it started out, it started out with the French chapter and, you know, you guys will have experienced this as well. It's not until you start reading about football in a new language and listening to commentary in a new language and thinking about football in a new language that you realize the limitations of your own language. Um, when it comes to talking about football. Um, and I think one of the things that really struck me about the language of French football was the amount of technical detail that you found, which certainly was very different to, to what I was used to reading about English football in English and listening to English language commentators. And um, yeah, that, that for me has always been one of the joys of following French football is, is, is you know, the learning bits of language as you go and, and even today when I'm reading about French football if I come across a bit of technical vocab that I'm not sure about I'll look it up I'll make sure I've understood it properly and, and all those things feed into your appreciation of the game. It's funny because you, you know I've been living in France for what 18 years and I assumed that I kind of had understood everything but actually reading reading your chapter on French football there was there was one that I'd kind of misunderstood slightly long long de bois which, because long can mean language, but it can mean tongue as well. And I always thought it was a wooden tongue, uh, you know, a kind of, so long de bois is people who kind of just spout nothingness, sort of banal answers rather than kind of actually talking about the game or talking about itself. So I learned reading your book that it is actually um, a wooden language. Just give a couple of, of, of examples, some of your favorites maybe, in terms of the technical, technical side of the game, because it's interesting that, you know, that's what struck me as well. Um, there are terms that just don't exist in English. Yeah, and that's that for me has always been one of the you know the really exciting things about about um, learning French football speak. I mean, exam an example I often use is grand pont, so the big sister of petit pont, and obviously everyone in in English understands that petit pont is the, the French equivalent of a nutmeg when you put the ball between your opponent's legs and then you gather it on the other side. Um, but grand pont when you knock the ball past your opponent on, on one side and then run around it and get it on the other. We just don't have a name for that in English. We never have done. And yet it's one of the most simple skill moves. You see it in almost every football match you ever see. But if someone does it, there's no quick and easy way of describing it. And, you know, there are names for it in Spanish, in Italian, in Portuguese. Uh, but f French was the first time, French was the first language um, that I knew of that had a specific name for it. Um, and then things like, I mean, even subtle things like control orienté, when a player's first touch both brings the ball under control and puts him in a position to do what he wants to do with the ball, whether that's play a pass or, or put a cross in or take a shot or something. And it's, it's a very simple thing, but again, we don't have anything to compare to that in English. Um, and then just to give you one other example, um, a, a positional name, uh, neuf et demi, uh, nine and a half, the player who's not really a number nine, but not really a number 10, um, you know, something like an Eric Cantona, perhaps. And I, I think the fact that we don't have an equivalent for that position in English means that you look at someone like Wayne Rooney, he spent his entire career with people trying to figure out whether he was a number nine or a number 10, when really he was a nine and a half. And had we had that bit of language in English football, People just would have said, oh, he's a nine and a half. You would have said that as soon as he emerged, and that would be the end of the debate. Whereas because we didn't have a name for that position, and still don't really, you might say a support striker perhaps, that was something that dogged him his entire career. And, and I think that's an example of, uh, of an area where 
you know, a, a lack of linguistic imagination, a lack of breadth um, to, to the, the football vocabulary can actually have quite a harmful effect because you're, you're unable to discuss things that are actually, you know, quite, quite obvious if you just look at them. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. We'll bring in Dave and, uh, and Ian. Ian, um, uh, first of all, I, I think what's interesting as well is, you know, you think about French football in the last 20 or 30 years, we talk about this technical language. I mean, French football generally um, has been phenomenal for the, for the level of technique of its younger players and its, and, and its players in general. And, I, you know, having, like I say, lived here for a long time, I find it amazing that in England we don't have uh, a term for contrôle orienté, which for me is, you know, an absolutely crucial um, technical jest, technical move in football that youngsters should be learning. And I, and I just wonder if not having a term for it actually, actually doesn't help when, when you're teaching youngsters. And just uh, before, before I bring you in, Ian, you know, we commentate these matches and uh, at halftime and, and at the end of the world feeds, we have to sort of translate interviews as, as, as they're coming out there. And that's one of the difficult tasks, especially when the player talks about his goal and says, I did a contrôle orienté and then a grand pas. And you're thinking, oh, hang on, how, how, how do I do this? But it's... it's it's interesting, no, Mr. Holyman? It is. It is. Hi, everyone. Um, it's fascinating listen, listening to Tom. And I think that, I think, isn't it, uh, it's a fairly sad reflection on fo- English football or British football, perhaps. Uh, the, the, the fact that we don't have these, this vocabulary is, is probably the result of, or the, I don't know if it's the result or the, the cause of the fact that of the style of football that we play, it's, it's very blood and guts and, and very, you know, all action. Whereas technique is not, is not something that has been particularly prized perhaps in the last 10, 15 years, certainly since Pep Guardiola came to, came to Man City. We've seen the likes of David Silva and, and uh, Bernardo Silva and Kevin De Bruyne. Technique is something that's coming into it, and perhaps we're going to have to start developing these terms. I mean, Tom mentioned support striker. That was not something that existed, what, 10 years ago? 15 years ago? They, they would talk about the, the, the guy playing off the main striker or the little and large partnership and things like this. But maybe we're starting to develop these terms because we're realizing that technique is starting to become more and more important. Yeah, I think, I, I think the younger generation in England is, is every bit as, as technical. Certainly, you know, certainly they've, they've caught up a, a lot in England, but the language hasn't as of yet. Dave, I, I, I want to bring you in because you're a linguistic expert as well. And I'm sure you've got a few favourites that, that you want to bring to our attention. Yeah, I do. I, when, when we talk about the prevailing culture in a place, there are some phrases that we've used already on the podcast, which I think have a negative impact on French football. We like to talk about being bien en place, which is well set up, being compact defensively. And if that's the primary goal for a coach, then it doesn't necessarily make for great viewing. But then, as you say, Matt, we get to half-time and we get half-time interviews when we come and take matches as well. And sometimes you'll get a player saying, on joue avec le frein à main, which means that we're playing with a handbrake on. So in the same phrase, you might be saying, well, we're bien en place, but we're playing too much with the handbrake. And... In the second half, what then we really want to see, and this is something I, re- I like in French, and it does exist in other languages as well, is you need to lâcher le cheval, which is effectively let the horses run. When you've got thoroughbreds in your team, pacey, skillful players, what you want to see them do is play in a, a manner which in French you'd call debridé, which is unbridled. Let them have a go. That's what people want to see. 
It's all about horses, Tom, is it? Yeah, well, just to pick up on what Dave was saying about uh, the, the idea of a team playing with a handbrake on, and that was something that Arsene Wenger used to talk about quite a lot when he was at Arsenal, and it was, it was not an expression that existed really in, in, in English football before that. And, and because he would mention it quite a lot, it's now something that's seeped into the vernacular. There's a, quite an interesting example of, of Wenger doing that, and um, I write about this in the book in, in the England section. Um, you can map very precisely the moment at which Fox in the Box entered the lexicon of British football. And it was thanks to uh, Arsene Wenger and Thierry Henry. Uh, and it goes back to the 2001 FA Cup final at Cardiff, when Arsenal absolutely dominate the game, but lose 2-1 to Liverpool, um, who scored twice through Michael Owen. And after the game, Henry didn't speak to any of the English journalists, but he did speak to some of the French journalists there. And he was saying, oh, we need a, um, a renard des surfaces you know, a, a fox of the penalty areas. We need a guy like Michael Owen who can play alongside me and, and snaffle up those those chances on the counter-attack. And um, these quotes end up in, in, in the British papers, and that's the headline, Henri wants a fox in the box. Later that summer, Arsenal signed Francis Jeffers from Everton, um, and they, uh, you know, the hope is that he will become the fox in the box. Um, and... <laughs> Uh, Francis Jeffers's uh, introductory press conference. That's what Wenger says. Here's hoping that this guy will become the fox in the box that everyone's been talking about. As it happened, uh, Francis Jeffers was a complete flop. But we've now had fox in the box um, as part of our football language ever since. Uh, and, and previously, it, it wasn't an expression that had ever ever been used here. That is so that is so interesting, Tom. And. Um, I didn't quite realise that. I, I knew that Francis Jeffers was was supposed to be the fox in the box, but I didn't know it came from Omri. And just to to add to the Wenger, you know, I think, it, again, it shows the influence of Arsene Wenger in English football that he's introducing words. And I remember a word he used quite quite regularly as well. It was when Cesc Fabregas was playing well, and he said, il est uh, l'homme providentiel d'Arsenal. He's, he's uh, the providential man. And I remember journalists were all writing about this, and they were going, wow. This guy is so intelligent. He's telling us words we didn't even know what, what they meant. So all these English journalists, because it does exist in English, providential. So, and they'd, they'd all been looking, looking this word up. But it gets used a lot in France. You know, a, commentate, a commentator will often say that, you know, the main guy in the team is l'homme providentiel. So, so anyway, bravo again, Arsenal. But there is maybe a myth slightly um, about, about Arsene's intelligence. Dave, you were, you were looking to come in? Yeah, I was. Yeah, I, one of the things that I noted in in Tom's chapter on the French language in football was um, the way they use famous players or famous incidents that are named after a player. So Tom speaks about the Arcanada, about the the Spanish goalkeeper who had a horrendous match in the 1984 European Championships. Now, when I first moved to France about 20 years ago, I thought I was quite well versed in football culture. I'd watched a lot, read a lot. Etc. Uh, Etc. Et but then I'd be talking to French colleagues, and they were saying, "Oh, what did you think of that Panenka or that Madja?" And I'd look at them and I'd say, "What are you on about? C- can you try and explain this to me?" And then eventually, it, Panenka is very common now in English football writing and talking about a chipped penalty. But the the Madja, I think, hasn't quite reached the equivalent status. That's the Rabba Madja back heel for Porto in 1987, and. It's actually a very disappointing goal when you watch it on the when you watch it back. You think that's one of the worst back heels I've ever seen, but it's an important time and it's really anchored in French culture. Um, also, to just to come back to the whole 
technical combat thing and this battle between English football and French football. The French talk about a leader technique, a technical leader, whereas in England, traditionally, we'd always say it's the person that shows the attitude. It's the sort of Terry Butcher style, up and at them, set the example by your physical play. Whereas in France, they've looked towards their technical leader, the Zidane type, to be the person to carry them through rather than someone who's demonstrative and, and winding up the crowd. Yeah, you're, you're listening, by the way, to Le Bourgeois. That was uh, David Crossan. We do welcome all of your comments on, on social media, um, hashtag Le Bourgeois, or via email, leaguearmpodcast at uh, gmail.com. Uh, we're talking about Tom Williams' uh, fascinating book, Do You Speak Football? And just before we go off the subject and talk about Brazilians, I'm going to give you all one last chance to, to, to bring up um, an expression that you like. And I just want to say, Tom, because I think you mentioned Zlatane. In, in your book to, to, to Zlatan somebody. I think since your book has been published, a new word has come out. And um, th- there is, um, this may not be yet official, but I've seen the verb Neymarise um, get used. And uh, people have said that Mbappe is getting Neymarise. He's, he's like under the influence of Neymar and he's, uh, you know, uh, allowing himself to, I don't know, adopt Neymar attitudes, whether that be technical or, 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 or in terms of his behavior. But, uh, Start with Tom, maybe, if you've got what, one more you want to you wanna bring up. And there are a lot, because I wanted to talk about the story of uh, Le Bout Casquette, which I thought was fascinating. But, um, but, you know, we can't go through them all. But, Tom? Um, if I have to pick one, I'll go for Footix. Uh, and, and Footix, of course, was the brightly coloured mascot from the 1998 World Cup. Um, but after the tournament, it became this pejorative term uh, for people who claimed to be football fans, but who didn't really know anything about the games, you might say, oh, but in you know, you're saying all this about football, but we, we know you're not a big fan. And, and it was a reflection of the fact that one of the consequences of that 1998 World Cup win for France was that you got this glut of people sort of masquerading as football fans, but who couldn't really back it up. And, and it's something you still hear today on, you know, you see it on message boards, you see it on Twitter someone comes up with a slightly dubious opinion, one way of shooting them down quite effectively is to describe them as unfoutiques because that basically means you're pretending to be a football fan, but you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, the English have got the prawn sandwich brigade, but they're, mm. they're, they're more sort of corporate than, than, than your average fan. Dave, you got a, a good one to, to bring to us? Yeah, and this one, is, it's in Tom's book as well, that Mouillet um, le Maillot, this goes slightly against some of the conversation we've had, but if you go to a, a Monaco game at Stade Louis II, there are some ultras there, there aren't that many of them, but all game long, they'll sing about Mouillet le Maillot, which is effectively putting lots of sweat into your shirt and working hard for the team. If you don't Mouillet le Maillot, the ultras aren't going to be happy. Fair play, fair play. Mouillet le Maillot, good, uh, uh, an excellent expression. Ian? I did pick out Zlatane because I thought the, the, the explanation was, was just so good of, of the, the, the sketch. The, the guignol, it's the spitting image uh, equivalent in France, and they absolutely got Zlatan's ego spot on. It's, it's an absolutely brilliant description, Tom. Um, but I think I, I particularly enjoy the, the, the expression, the coiffeur, the, the match of the coiffeur. So it's, the hairdressers. The hairdressers. The, the match of the hairdressers. This is... This is the meaningless third group stage game. I think in, in the 1998 World Cup was the first time I, I heard this reference. And um, it was after France had already qualified for the knockout stages, they can give, give the rest of the squads a game and give the first team uh, regulars a, a bit of a rest. And those, those highly, highly talented footballers 
um, were called the coiffeur and, and the hairdressers. And Frank LeBeuf, who eventually came in for the, for the final when Laurent Blanc was suspended, would have been classed as one of those coiffeurs. Just to finish on that, Ian, I was much amused by an interview in the official match programme at a recent France game when um, Benjamin Pavard was asked what he'd have been if he wasn't a footballer, and his answer was coiffeur, hairdresser. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to move on, but as ever, I like to get, to get the last word in. And I, I did just want to mention, when you were talking about net players' names um, being, be, being taken forward, last week... Um, I've been practicing papinads with my nine-year-old daughter in, in the garden. And that, you know, I'm not making this up. She's, she's very interested. Her mum's from, from Marseille. I've told her all about Jean-Pierre Papin. We've been doing papinads. Two of our balls are in the neighbor's garden. And that's another issue with the, uh, with the whole confinement, as they say in France, the lockdown. It's kind of awkward going and ringing on the bell saying, can you, can you throw the ball back? But um, thank you very much, uh, Tom. You do, do stay with us to talk about the, the Brazilians. And if you are listening to this and you want to you read more, um, do look up Tom's book, Do You Speak Football? It's a, it's a great read. You're listening to Le Bourgeois, um, an interactive podcast. We, uh, we do like to give you little challenges, including our Deja Who section, where you have to guess the, uh, the player we are talking about. So, I'm just going to uh, bring you the answer to our last Deja Who. The clue was my hometown is best known for its handball team and I started my career not far away in Grenoble. In France, I've played for Tours, Istres and Montpellier. I finished top of the world without finding the back of the net and I've spent quite a lot of time sitting near a touchline in London of late. I'd say that was one of producer Ian's easier ones, Olivier Giroud. Olivier Giroud, the answer. We had correct answers from Dr. Wei Chun Lo, from Adam Cyrilnik, and from Michael Jones. So congratulations to all of you. But uh, this one's a bit tougher, I think. So do listen in. And uh, if you think you know the answer, you can uh, send us your responses using the hashtag DejaHuL1 on Twitter or by emailing us at league1podcast at gmail.com. So here we go. I started my European odyssey in Greece and then I played in the Netherlands before moving to France. I played for two clubs in France, one being Monaco. I won four Ligue 1 titles. My nickname is Gila. So, there you go. A few slightly puzzled faces appearing on my screen, but uh, I'm sure Ian, Dave and, and Tom will be able to to get the answer let's let's move on though to our brazilians we we did do a, a best five argentines in the history of french football um last week our final selection was di maria gallardo carlos bianchi delio honest and lucho gonzalez um we did have one of our faithful listeners pointing out that osvaldo piazza was not mentioned and that uh, that was most certainly uh, an oversight three times uh, a champion with saint-etienne in the 1970s um, he was a very rugged and a very strong Argentine defender. So Piazza most definitely deserved a mention. But we're going to move on to, to the Brazilians. Ian Holyman has uh, written an excellent article on the League uh, One.com website where he has selected his five. So Ian, how difficult a task was this? Actually, I actually didn't find it that difficult because there was, uh, for me there was only one or two little points of debate. I actually thought the Argentines was, was uh, less obvious 
I think, I mean, the five. I'll give you the five then. Uh, Neymar, Janinho, who um, if you're not a fan of, you simply just don't love football. Rai, Ronaldinho. See my answer to uh, Janinho. And uh, also Hilton, who has been less welcoming to, to Liga and attackers than his name would suggest. Hey. <laughs> That's, uh, that's a mightily impressive list. Just let us know what your criteria are, because some would say, well, hang on, Thiago Silva was for many years the best defender in the world and probably, or not probably, definitely a higher calibre of international defender than, uh, than Hilton. But of course, Hilton has been such an incredible servant and has won league titles with Marseille and with, uh, with Montpellier. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that, the, the criteria, he's been, he's been in Ligue 1 for 16 years. Now, he's, he's approaching 500 games. He's a little bit younger than our very own David Crossan. Older. Uh, older. Yeah. A, a year story. older. A little bit older. To the, day. Part of the, the Robbie Thompson age, age uh, gap there. Um, but, I mean, it's fabulous. 42 years old, still playing. He's ever-present this season. He's missed nine minutes. Nine minutes of Montpellier's league season. Fabulous servant, and as you said, a, d- a double league winner. And uh, let's not forget, he w- he came up against PSG in that 20, 2011 2012 season at Montpellier and uh, was fabulous. And they they pipped PSG to the title in hugely unexpected circumstances. Neymar, I think, not only for his he's been fabulous on the pitch when he's been on the pitch, but he's just given Ligue 1 a very different dimension. I mean, you talked about Sonny Anderson coming to Lyon and he changed things for 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 Lyon and sort of set them on this path that, that led them to these seven league titles. But Neymar has just taken Ligue 1 to a, an absolutely new level. He's been since joined by Mbappe, but the whole world now knows about Paris Saint-Germain because of Neymar. Ronaldinho, just a fabulous player. I mean, he didn't. He perhaps underperformed. I think that's probably fair. He underperformed on the pitch in his second season. Many would say that he overperformed in various Parisian nightclubs and maybe that was the problem but he became a, a fabulous player and I think uh, PSG was a decent start for him in Europe. Rai was a, a fabulous player for Paris Saint-Germain, the, the Paris Saint-Germain that won the Cup Winners' Cup in 96. Captain decide, elegant player. His only team in Europe was PSG, um, was part of the Brazil squad that won the World Cup in 94 and then Janinho, well Janinho, I mean what a, what a player. Absolute linchpin of that um, still seven league titles and free kicks I mean Thierry Henry said he has never seen a better taker of a free kick ever but that, that's good enough for me okay Ian but do you know who Thierry Henry's hero was you're going to tell me that Loke. yeah I am I am because when Thierry was uh, coming through the ranks at Monaco he absolutely worshipped Sonny Anderson <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm not going to go on my Sonny Anderson rant just yet but you know if we're talking about criteria well, yeah i am actually we're talking about criteria um in terms of the way he influenced his club and the french game as a whole sonny anderson signing for for leon first he was outstanding for from what well, was actually marseille he played for first then monaco he was exceptional at monaco um thierry henry used to watch him at training pulled his socks up around his knees that's why thierry wears his socks up around his knees because sonny did that yeah imagine being worshipped by France's all-time record goal scorer. And then when, when Leon got Sonny Anderson, this was the, you know, I was thinking about it this morning. It's a bit like Bergkamp going to Arsenal, just taking the club to another level on the training ground, on the pitch. Um, 
he didn't perhaps get the game time and the plaudits that his talent merited at, at Barcelona because they had Ronaldo and Romario and like, they had just sensational football players. But Sonny Anderson, I spoke to, to John Collins in depth about his time at Monaco and he just, he just gushes about Sonny Anderson. The goals this guy scored were unbelievable and he did allow Leon to, to take that. Well, he, he, he inspired Leon to taking that step up to becoming winners and to winning those seven league titles. And of course, Janino absolutely should be in the, uh, in the top five, but I think Sonny Anderson, um, I think Sonny Anderson definitely should be in there. And I think it's a bit harder than well, I would find it a bit harder than that, just because I think there are so many incredible Brazilians. We, I mean, Tom can come in on, on this a bit later as well, maybe, but in England, they've been talking recently about who are the best Brazilians to have played in England. We've been talking about Roberto Firmino, um, Janinho, uh, uh, Middlesbrough. These guys are not, not the same calibre as Neymar, as Ronaldinho, as, as Rai. You know, all respect to Firmino. But um, I think it shows the, the depth of talent. And I actually asked, Sonny Anderson works with being sports. And I, asked, I said, why did you never play in England? It would have been amazing to see you. And he said, well, I couldn't, I couldn't go because of work permit issues because you know he needed to be playing a certain number of games for Brazil etc so it was harder for the Premier League to get those players but Dave I want to hear your views about Ian's top five who do you think should should be in there shouldn't be in there I'd like to talk a little bit about Ronaldinho to be honest because PSG definitely didn't see the best of him okay he turned up in some of the high profile games but he only scored 17 goals over two seasons and I used to go to the Parc de Prince almost every home game at that time and Admittedly, he wasn't helped by the team around him. There was, shall we say, a lack of technical quality about him in that team. But also, Luis Fernandez's tactics. My memories are going to the Parc de France at that time, where Ronaldinho sometimes being stationed up front on his own, and PSG's central defenders hoofing the ball over his head. And the little lad had a decent jump on him at that stage. He was young, but he wasn't going to win headers against league and defenders. And flawless little tricks and everything... I actually, in that early noughties era, in terms of his impact or his efficacité, to go back to another Frenchism that we don't really have an equivalent for in English, which is to be effective. It's to do with stats, scoring goals and assists. Laurent Robert in the 2000-2001 season had way more of an impact than Ronaldinho did, even in that first season when he was better than his second. So Dave, you're confirming then Laurent Robert was better than Ronaldinho. Matt, I'm very much in the Rue camp when it comes to Ronaldinho. Giroud, Mr. Auxerre, when Ronaldinho was sold to Barcelona and PSG brought in Pauletta, said, Paris Saint-Germain have sold a Brazilian dancer and they've signed a Portuguese hitman. Wow. Fantastic Giroud statement. And uh, yeah, Pauletta certainly scored a few more goals than, than Ronaldinho did. Tom, what are your, what are your thoughts on, on Ian's selection and you know, any, any other Brazilian names you want to throw into the hat? I would broadly agree with Ian's selection, but I agree with you, Matt, on Sonny Anderson. Um, such an influential player. Like you say, people almost forget about his, his time at Marseille and, and, and Monaco to an extent because he was such a, a pivotal figure for Lyon and, and, and providing the spark for them to go on and dominate Ligue 1 in the way that they did. And as you say, his stylistic legacy, the fact that young players all over the world now play with their socks pulled up over their knees, that all comes from Sonny Anderson. Most people... Most young players did it assuming they were copying Thierry Henry, not realising necessarily that Henry was copying Sonny Anderson. So uh, a big fashion legacy as well. And to drop another name into the mix, perhaps not quite at the same standing as some of the players we've, we've mentioned, but Nene, 
when he was at PSG. Um, perhaps had the misfortune of being there just before the Qataris arrived, but basically carried the entire club for, for a couple of seasons. Uh, fantastically talented, elegant, left-footed, left-sided attacking player. Really good goal-scoring record as well. Um, and still big pals with Neymar, which I find slightly baffling. Um, but there we go. Yeah, good shout, good shout. I've, I've, I've jotted Nene down as uh, you know one of the... Sort of maybe secondary list that I've got. Fantastic players. I mean, Marquinhos is sort of playing his way into, into Ligue 1 folklore, isn't he, with, with PSG. Chris, um, fantastic defender for Leon Edmilson uh, before him. Um, I didn't mention Claudio Casapa, but he, he was very important, I think, in the dressing room as, as well as on, on the pitch. In that fantastic Marseille side in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, they had an uncompromising uh, Brazilian defender, Carlos Moza, who is... Uh, very, very popular still down in Marseille. I've jotted down Valdo, the PSG midfielder in the 90s. And I just want to mention, because they're incredible names, Marseille for one season in the 70s, they had Jarzinho and Paulo Cesar, two World Cup winners from 1970. They only stayed um, for a season, but they did uh, I have jotted the stats down. Um, Jarzinho got 13 goals in 25 games, Paulo Cesar 16 in, in 31. So I imagine that was a pretty entertaining uh, season at the velodrome yeah, just to just to mention you mentioned carlos moser he, he he's perhaps uh, he was equally influential as being chris waddle's chauffeur to training at marseille uh, it was a kind of incongruous pairing you've got this north bloke from the northeast who who doesn't speak any other any other language other than english and you had this uncompromising defender from brazil who spoke nothing but portuguese so that waddle apparently would jump in the car and uh, moser would be driving and they would just spend their time going back and forth saying Brazilian and English footballers' names in some sort of like, kind of like football uno, I suppose. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> no, and apparently Waddle thought it was fabulous and it, it, Moses seemed to do the trick because Waddle was absolutely brilliant in Marseille. But I mean, there were, I, mean, I think if you do this, this again in 10 years, Marquinhos is definitely in there. Marquinhos is, is a fabulous player. He's been brilliant at Paris Saint-Germain. He, he really has. I think that was, a, that was such a smart move to, to bring him in, even though they did pay big money for him um, from, from Roma. Uh, one player that I wanted to bring in, a little bit left field. Now, he wasn't going to make the top five. Okay? He wasn't going to make the top five, but a player that I liked when I first sort of really became aware of French football and worked, started working in it is Elan who was at Sochaux, who were at that time were a very tidy team with like Sir Jeremy Menez and Jeremy Mathieu. Uh, he played at Saint-Étienne as well, Ajaxio and, and Bastia. He was, he was quite a tidy little support, I suppose, support striker, really. Yeah, he was good. There are quite a few blank faces I can see here. Dave. Well, David was laughing. Yeah, I, I want to talk about players who don't have those characteristics that we typically associate with Brazilians so not the flair players I, I wanted to talk about Moser because I watched a, a little Moser documentary over the weekend Moser the bulldozer as he was nicknamed because he cleaned everybody out and he in that wonderfully gifted Marseille team where they had Waddle Pelé and Papin they had some real bruises as well and he led the charge with that and he'd say in the big European games would just look people in the eye and let them know we weren't going to take a backward step. And I admire that attitude. And he's loved at Marseille to this day as Moser. But one player who was important for his teams, but really not that good technically, was Brandao uh, at Marseille and then at Saint-Étienne. <laughs> the emergence of Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang is down to Brandao roughing up defenders and giving Aubameyang space. 
Uh, he was something of a, a Coupe de la Ligue specialist, shall we say. Although he was around when Marseille won the title in 2010. He won the Coupe de la Ligue at Saint-Étienne and several times with Marseille. So definitely doesn't deserve to be in the top five, but I'd like to give him an honourable mention. But yeah, Brandao is, is probably the anti-Brazilian, isn't he? If, if you were going to describe him, I think you'd describe him as an old-fashioned English centre-forward. Brandao would have, would have done really well, um, I don't know, at Peterborough or somewhere like that. But, uh, you know, fair play to Brandao. He's, uh, he's, he's carved out a good career for himself. Um, we're going we're gonna to name our top five and we're just going to see if Ian is going to get the nod or not. Um, I think it's fair to say Neymar will, Ronaldinho will, Janinho definitely will. The two question marks, I would say, are hanging over Rai and Hilton. Potential replacements, guys. Um, Sonny Anderson, definitely. Uh, Thiago Silva, possibly. Um, Ian, Ian, obviously, you know, you want to go for those five. Dave, Dave and Tom, start with Dave. What, what would you say? I'm happy with Rai being in there. He was superb, uh, Paris Saint-Germain. And... Uh, Hugely influential on the pitch and off it around the dressing room. Lots and lots of trophies. People, because they think, as Latan said, that Paris Saint-Germain's history started with Latan. Forget all of those European semi-finals and the Cup Winners' Cup that they won in the 90s. So I'd like to keep Rye in. I'm, it's a challenge. When I did the Argentinians, I definitely wanted a positional balance. I didn't want it only to be forwards. But sadly, and regular listeners will know that Hilton is one of my absolute favourites. I'm going to drop him and pick Sonny Anderson instead of him. It's a, it's a, it's a tough shout. It's a tough shout. Ian shaking his head. Um, Tom, what do you reckon? Um, I'm going to do the same thing as Dave. Um, I think uh, Rai absolutely has to be in there. Um, I think he symbolises that, that great PSG team of the mid-90s who tend to get overlooked quite a lot when you look at the achievements of the, the current crop of PSG players. Um, I think Sonny Anderson has to be in there. And sadly... Um, I think Vitorian Hilton is, is a great shout, you know, amazing longevity, um, you know, one of the, the symbols of the Montpellier team that they won the guy in 2012. Um, but I think for, for, for his influence, um, I would probably put Sonny Anderson in ahead of him. But doesn't, um, doesn't Rise suffer a little bit from what cricket fans would call Mark War syndrome? Uh, football fans might call it Phil Neville syndrome. He wasn't even the best in his family. <laughs> no, his his older brother was Socrates, uh, which yeah, is is a lot to live up to. Right? I think he did. A, I think he did a very good job. <laughs> now he was he was phenomenal. And um, our, our regular uh, pundit Robbie Thompson, who's listening in on this, is going berserk, saying, "How could you even suggest that Ray is not in the top five? He definitely, definitely needs to be in it." So Ray makes it along with Janinho, along with Ronaldinho, along with Neymar and Sonny Anderson. Thank you very much everybody um, listeners if you have um, any thoughts we always welcome them have we forgotten a, a brilliant Brazilian um, I hope not but it's possible um, so do email in league one podcast at gmail.com or use the hashtag Le on Twitter thank you very much to our special guest today Tom Williams thank you as well to Ian Holyman and, uh, and David Cross and uh, from all of us at Le Boja, it's time to say au revoir et à bientôt we'll see you again soon bye bye Here's Neymar now, Cavani is there. Saint-Etienne has surely won it in the 89th minute. Kalupa Cavano. Oh, what a strike. An absolute beauty for Florian Tobin. Kylian Mbappe wraps it up.